Number 9. Ephesians, third quarter, 2023. Daniel Duda. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. We're going to start lesson 9 in the quarter on Ephesians, Living Wisely. Dr. Daniel Duda is our moderator, and Iris is going to offer our opening prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of wisdom, a God of love, and a God who cares about his wayward children that he has redeemed. Lord, thank you for inviting us to leave the past behind, the brokenness, the striving, the things that have alienated us from you, and to embrace a new life and your way of living and being in this world, Lord. We want to learn from you. Teach us. We ask for your presence in this meeting and for your special blessing on Daniel and all of us as we wrestle with the text. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Iris. So here we are in lesson number nine in the quarter on Ephesians, and we will continue with living wisely and what it means. So we talked about the division in Ephesians chapter one to three, and then chapters four, and this is a continuation. The lesson follows the division in your Bible. So if you look at the texts, For this week's study, it says verses 1 to 20, but actually verse 1 and 2, they summarize the section 25 to 32. So in 4.1, we're starting that we should imitate God, uses the Greek word mimics. So be imitators of God as God's beloved children. So let's read 4.32 to 5.2. Because it would be much more natural to divide and put the chapter 5 where verse 3 starts. So 3 to 17 would be the next unit. And then, as we will say in the next lesson, 18 to 33, towards the end of the chapter, is the next unit. But obviously, as Stephen Langton in 12th century put it on his horse ride, this is another example where the division into chapters is not the most natural. So, 432 to 52. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. All right. We discussed verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Kindness is the best way to reflect God's image. Compassion. Jesus started a new movement because he had compassion in his heart. Changed the world because of that. Compassion was considered weakness in the ancient world, not a virtue. Forgiving one another. We said not for your sake, not for their sake, but as Christ forgave you. Therefore, follow God's example. Why? Because you are dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. And it's based on what? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So, when Paul summarizes the instructions for Christian living in light of the cosmic reconciliation that God has accomplished, how that new community, God's new society, is going to be different, what is the main motivating factor? Larry? A couple of the versions give a different impression of uh, chapter 5-2, and Phillips and others 
indicate that the offering was what was pleasing to God rather than that the sacrifice was to God. And some of the versions read and leave the impression that it was the sacrifice itself that was to God rather than that it was pleasing to God. Is there any clarity that you can add to that? The Old Testament uses these sacrifices as an offering pleasing to God. So you have a text like Genesis 8.21, Exodus 29.18 and 25 and 41, where you have the sanctuary, then Leviticus 1, 9, 13, 17, 17, 6, Numbers 28, 13. So the language is there. The question is the meaning. And I am going to ask you, so what is it that this text says about Christ's sacrifice? How do you understand it? In what way, if you look under number three, in what way was Christ's sacrifice pleasing God or offered to God? Iris. You originally asked, what is the motivator? And yes. when he refers to the audience as God's dearly beloved children, then that assigns value to these people. And the value they have comes from Jesus' self-sacrificing love. So they have so much worth because Christ was willing to even give his own life for them. And so that is the motivator. If God loved you so much, that he gave himself, his own life for you, then live likewise. I think that is the invitation. That's the appeal. And if you don't understand this, then verses 3 to 9 are easily going to deteriorate into moralizing. You know, a finger, how come you are still living like this? But if you miss this summarizing sentence, you are going to miss that God is doing something that by changing the way you think, renewing your mind is going to be projected into your life with not only the right results, but also the right motivation. And that's why we said in the preceding lesson that behavior is only the consequence. Attacking the behavior is not going to accomplish. You need to start with the source of the problem, and that is the mind. And then you need to have the right motivation. And that's why 5, 1, and 2 is so important that you are imitators of God. As we said under number one, most children learn best by watching and imitating than by listening to lecturing. Please. I'm in the RSV. And when I look at this verse, I guess I looked at it slightly different in verse two, because to me, it's almost as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us was parenthetical. And it's and walk in love. And that walk in love is the fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And our walk, our walk with him does involve sacrificing ourselves and dying to self. As I recall, Paul writes in Romans 12, 1, that we are to present ourselves as a living sacrifice for him. So our walk in love, and as we talked in the last session, Forgiveness is not a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's a decision we make. And walking in love is a decision we make. It's not because we feel warm and fuzzy. And so sometimes that does mean we have to put away our selfishness to walk in love, which is a sacrifice on our part that we gladly give to God. So it just somehow the way the commas were and whatnot, I got a different impression that it was my walk that was the sacrifice, not just Jesus' sacrifice for us. 
In the Greek text, there is not about our offering to God. It says, as the beloved children give up yourself because the Christ gave himself as an offering and sacrifice to God, to the God in order of well fragrant or in order that was a good order, well smelling one. Okay, that's what the Greek says. But certainly, as you mentioned, things are not happening because we feel like doing something. But remember the instructions for the one who was stealing, the thief should not think of himself, but be a blessing to someone else. The same was about the speech. The speech should not be harming and hurting, should be conveying grace. Michael? Something that I have pondered numerous times in my life is what was the relationship between God the Father and His Son, Jesus the Christ, that required a blood sacrifice. You know, Abraham prepared to sacrifice Isaac, and at the last moment, God says, no, don't do that. You don't have to do that at all. You've proven yourself to me. And right before Jesus' death, he quotes the 22nd Psalm and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He truly is bereft at the time. And so I, I don't know that there's an adequate answer to my question, but what is it about the relationship that required a true blood sacrifice? Okay, so that's why I said let's spend five, ten minutes before we discuss instructions for Christian living and go into the aspects about sexual ethics and other things that he discusses in the following verses. How does this text help us to understand the sacrifice of Christ? So it shows that it's motivated by love of God, the Father, in verse 1, also by love of Christ towards us. Some manuscripts have you. It also shows that Christ is not a passive victim, something that happened to him because he gave himself up for us. You mentioned why the sacrifice was needed. So once God says, if you eat, surely by death you are going to die, surely you will die. And the serpent says, surely you will not die. How do you know who is telling the truth? So is it that God requires the sacrifice? Is it God the bull who smelled the pleasant odor and has said, now I am satisfied, I am happy? Or is that sacrifice revealing something about the nature of reality? So in the society where all the pagan nations around are offering a sacrifice and the size of your sacrifice determines the value and the outcome, the efficacy of it. God is trying to teach his people. I provided the sacrifice, remember? In Genesis 3, God provides it. You would have nothing to bring if I did not provide everything that you have. And if you are a normal person, you offer a lamb. If you are a poor person, you don't offer a lamb, but a dove. And if you are a leader in the nation, you don't offer a lamb because, as David says, if God required a sacrifice, I could easily offer 1,000 lambs and it would not cost me much. I would not even notice. So it's not the living weight of the sacrifice that provides the forgiveness because a dove provides equal amount of forgiveness or equally efficiently forgiveness as a bull does. So what is God trying to teach them with all this and this pleasing Odor can be rather disturbing and bothering us who live in a completely different society. But what is God teaching these people by using a language like this? Paul is here talking about the motivation. 
Before we go into the sexual ethics of verses 3 to 5, talking about impure, immoral, and greedy people, we need to handle the question of motivation. Why do we do what we do? So what is the context that Paul is using? In my opinion, the motivator is not necessarily that I want to be better because of my own sake, because I want to look better, because one, I want to be better. The motivation comes from liking God, from liking the way that he is, his forgiving attitude, which invites me to contemplate him, to like him more and more. And the ultimate result is nothing that I am looking actually is the actual result of the transformation by being sealed by the Holy Spirit that changes my mind because I start liking the way that he is. And that takes us to the sacrifice where God is pleased. Not yeah, so what makes it pleasing? Yeah, it makes it pleasing not because of how gross, how bloody, how violent it was, but because on being that gross, it actually revealed his character, and even though he may have been wanted not to see it, that helped reveal who he is, how he is, and then we benefit from that sacrifice that invites us to be like him. So we are the resulting benefiting of that, not necessarily God. So that's the way that I see it. Yeah, thank you. So God is not the big boss who wants to sit on the throne and command what needs to be done and what cannot happen. God is the one who is willing to come down and to be mocked and beaten and spitted on and crucified. Why? Not because he enjoyed it, not because God required it or the Father required it, but because like a fragrance, it spreads a certain understanding of who God is, that he's not going to abuse the power to get what he wants, but he's achieving it by showing, spreading his love. Lou? I like to think about the word paid. Paid can have many meanings. And when it comes, it can have a legal meaning that Jesus paid the price because God required it, which puts God in a very bad light. But it can also, to me, it can also mean that he paid the ultimate price. He was willing. He was willing because of his great love to come down here as a baby and live and die and be crucified and then risen again. So we have the Holy Spirit. So paid, the word paid can be kind of tricky because it can be a legal term that a price was paid because God demanded it, or it can be an expression of the great love. We talk sometimes about servicemen and policemen who paid the ultimate price. They didn't pay anybody. They were simply willing to die for a cause. And Jesus was more than willing to die for a cause. And God was willing to allow that. I just picture God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus in a little unity committee meeting well before creation, that they had all of this planned out exactly how God's love was going to be revealed to us as humans. So the word paid can be tricky. And I think that as we think of it, that he was willing and the Father was willing and the Holy Spirit, they were all willing for that great sacrifice that Jesus made. Yep. Thank you. And remember the quotation from Ellen White, if the Tasks were divided differently, meaning if the Holy Spirit remained sitting on the throne and the Father came and sacrificed himself and the Son would testify about him and his sacrifice, the story of salvation would not change one bit. It would all be the same because it's a revelation of character. It's not how they distribute the work 
And the problem is, if you take paid, which is a metaphor, it costs him something if you take it as a reality. If I see a bed of flowers and I say, I see a sea of colors, and you say, oh, Daniel, you wanted to say that the flowers are wet and salty. You just spoiled the metaphor because you took a metaphor as a reality while it was a metaphor. So when we say Jesus paid it all, we say it cost him the ultimate price. As you mentioned, they paid the ultimate price. Livius? The way I understand this requirement, this payment, the sacrifice of Jesus, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's two natures that are being revealed in this sacrifice. The wages were paid by Satan, if you will. Satan is dealing out the wages here. And only an infinite being can demonstrate the result of Satan's actions and restore. No one takes my life, I give it, he says, and I have power to take it up again. So he took it upon himself to reveal this character of sin, and it only exists in the context of God's character. Like, And that's what had to be revealed in this ultimate sacrifice is the sacrifice of the other. I mean, the, the character of the other. And Satan revealed that, revealed his character in the death of Jesus of the ultimate result of sin, which he's responsible for. So it's a requirement in that respect. It's required because it exists in this context of goodness between these two natures. And only when you stand in the presence, in the context, in the nature of God, does this selfishness come out as completeness and death. It kills you. Thank you. So what is pleasing is that the revelation of God's character was made. And so we can see that it cost the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we can imitate the love that they expressed, showed towards us in our way of relating to people around us. Terry, let's read verses 3 to 7. But fornication and impurity of any kind or greed must not even be mentioned among you as is proper among saints. Entirely out of place is obscene, silly, and vulgar talk. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Be sure of this, that no fornicator or impure person or one who is greedy, that is, an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be associated with them. So, what is it that he says, instead let there be thanksgiving? rather than participation. They don't be partners with them. Instead, let there be thanksgiving, an acknowledgement of our dependence on God and a grateful response for God's gift of redemption. How do we express our love? Remember in 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul is horrified that the Christian would go to a prostitute? And what's so horrifying to Paul is not the moral character of the woman that he's uniting with, but saying, don't you realize that by establishing a horizontal relationship, certain horizontal relationship, you are destroying a vertical relationship with God? So what is the significance of this segment? The juxtaposition of greediness and idolatry, which is a form of idolatry, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Don't be deceived with empty words. Do you know example of people listening to certain story? and being deceived by empty words. 
Paul says, be careful which story you listen to, because you might find yourself being deceived by the story that does not deliver what was expected. You recall Genesis 3, when the woman saw that the tree is pleasing to the eye and can provide wisdom which you can't see. She took, she ate, and she shared that evangelism. And she found herself deceived because the fruit did not deliver what it promised. Can you see that in the context? Paul says, you are living in a society where you are surrounded by immorality. Anybody needs any explanation what sexual mores looked like in Roman Empire? The abuse of children, the male prostitution, the prostitutes, female prostitutes, etc. Probably there is no need to rehash that. You are all aware. But Paul says, if you get your mores from the society, if you are partners with people around you, then somehow the cosmic reconciliation that God accomplished, it's put under the question. Henry? I was wondering if, couldn't this be also related with the fact that at that time, sexuality was also part of religion and that there may be also the confusion that involving those religious sexual rituals, they were trying to obtain their, like offering, given that as sacrifices, as offerings in order to get some sort of a clearance in their lives. And that that's why Paul is also saying, don't even have a hint. I mean, he's not talking here to Romans. He's talking to these Christians, don't even have a hint of sexual immorality, thinking that by engaging in actions, you will get what you are looking for, but actually is by already offering thanksgiving that you don't have to do anything because God has already done everything. You are not connecting with the higher power. You are not having magical influence that way. On the contrary, you are just feeding your immoral, impure, and greedy part of your personality, which shows your idolatry, that you believe the wrong story, that this is going to fill the hole, this is going to bring the ultimate happiness, and you will be disappointed, you will be hurt, crushed. Instead, let there be thanksgiving, thanksgiving to acknowledgement of dependence on God, who by bringing the redemption, he is the source of every blessing. And that attitude will correct the self-serving focus, which is expressed in sexual immorality. All right, let's go to the dualistic picture of darkness and light, verses 8 to... Uh, by the way, let not be deceived with empty words. So if you believe the wrong story, you will be deceived. Going back to Genesis 3, and just think about how many wrong stories are perpetuated in the world in which we live that will ultimately deceive people and will not deliver what was expected. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. How do you understand God's wrath that comes on those who are disobedient? What is he talking about? Is he talking about eschatological judgment? I put it in number six. Is the wrath of God mentioned here, the end time judgment? Is he saying that God decided to make up some rules, and if he finds out that you ignore those rules and still go ahead anyway and enjoy themselves, then he will catch up with you one day? Is he talking about that? How do you understand the present tense? Because of such things, God's wrath is coming, comes on those who are disobedient. Carol? I think it's a natural consequence. I think doctor would be angry if a patient had emphysema and lung cancer and kept on smoking. And he couldn't do anything about it, but the natural consequence he knows is going to kill the person. So I think he would be very upset and angry that that person 
is doing that to harm himself. Yes, and this is the context. The greedy person is an idolater, that if you value something else than God, you are putting something on a pedestal and it's going to disappoint you. And such a behavior brings its own reward or lack of it. It's not going to deliver. You are going to feel betrayed and deceived. Thank you, Henry. I would like to qualify this giving up by God by saying that according to the verse, it says that let no one deceive you with empty words, like an echo from Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve got deceived by the serpent. Empty words, right? There had no substantiation that what the serpent a creature was saying could be much better than what the creator was saying. So they were deceived, and God never actually left Adam and Eve. He was there. So this giving up is not like, well, you were disobedient, I'm on my way. But actually, I cannot stick my hands on it because you are not letting me. You are chosen to not let me help you because on your freedom, which I have always granted to you, first, you were free to love me. Now you are free to choose the empty words. So by doing so, you cannot let me help you. That's why the present tense in there is the wrath of God comes, not will come, comes whenever I get deceived. Because I put myself in the position saying, God, I don't want your help. And this is the God giving up, saying, okay, your way, not because I want you. Let me remind you, I am next to you if you change your mind again, because this is the invitation that Paul has been saying, the renewal of the mind. Don't stay in that deceitful stage. Go back, come back and be thankful that I have never given up in the fact that I have turned away from you, but it's you the one turning away from me. That's right. And notice in verse five, for of this, you can be sure if you behave like this, you have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Do you understand the background? Levites, because they are the priests, they have no inheritance in the promised land. But now you are the priests and you have the inheritance. And what is the inheritance? You are part of the kingdom of God. You are part of this new society, new type of community that God is establishing. Christ is presently at the right hand of God, but one day he will come. And the kingdom of the Son is going to become the kingdom of the Father, and all the power and dominion and authority are going to be destroyed, and you will be in that kingdom, and that's your inheritance. In other words, if what is holding you back from this greedy, self-destructive, self-centered behavior is only the writing on the wall, you are giving away inheritance that has much greater value. Because God wants to change you by the renewal of your mind, by changing the motivation, so that you are not an idolater. You don't believe the empty words, the wrong narrative, the wrong story, because God is promising something much more. You are children of light. You are part of the great inheritance now and in the future. Don't sell yourself cheaply. All right, Terry, verses 8 on. For once you were in darkness. But now in the Lord, you are light. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. There is the pleasing again. So now you can see that 
it has a different connotation that it cannot have the bull smelling the odor in verse one, because don't live in fear. Oh, have I done enough? Is this pleasing enough to God? Is he satisfied with me? No, you can have a different perspective on your behavior because what is pleasing is that you are loving children who motivate and imitate his loving behavior. Yes. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what such people do secretly, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be careful then how you live not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time, because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Thank you. Yeah, 17, that's the end of the section. So if you want to know what the casual sex and all kind of practices looked like in Roman Empire, thanks to the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, you can go to Pompeii city and see the inscriptions. And as Henry indicated, when you connect this with uh, religious practices and rituals, that it gives you somehow the connection with the divine and magically connects you with the higher power, you can see what will be the price you pay. And that's why Paul says, you were once in darkness, but now you are in the light. You are light in the Lord, and therefore you can live as children of light. This is why it is said, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. What is he talking about here? What is verse 14? It's a difficult one. So Paul is most probably here quoting an ancient Christian hymn, because there is no direct quote from the Old Testament. So there is something similar in Isaiah 26, 19, Isaiah 60, verse 1, arise and shine, but most probably he is quoting from an ancient Christian hymn. So his audience exactly knows what he's quoting, and he's going to talk, be filled with the Spirit, verse 17, and as a result of being infilled with this Spirit, there will be fullness, and then he's uh, going to speak in participle, speaking, singing, making music, giving thanks, and then submitting. The result of being filled with the Holy Spirit is going to be a completely different style. So if you wake up from your sleep, if you rise from the dead, remember you are dead in trespasses and sins, then something shining is going to happen. Just as when Christ rose from dead, there was something shining of a new era, new eon starting. Livius? John chapter 3, verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So that's the contrast between the light and the darkness. The problem is not the darkness. The problem is that the light has come and people refused it. Nobody is going to die because of their sins. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, to use the metaphors of paying, that Lou mentioned at the beginning of the lesson, all sins of all people of all ages were paid for. Nobody's going to die because of their sins. If anybody's going to die, is because the light has come and people prefer darkness. Okay, let's go to verse 15, 16. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time, because the days are evil. How do you understand this? 
Therefore, be very careful. Redeem the time. Now, remember, if you have two children and they are very different, if you say to someone, be careful, it can have traumatizing impact on them. And the other one does not even pay attention. What impact does it have to you when it says, be very careful, make the most of every opportunity. The days are evil. Larry. When I was much younger, I had the mistaken idea that I could always go back to the intersection in the road and take the other path. It was really frustrating when I realized that was not how life worked. So making the most is an important topic. When I look at things that I would like to know more of today, I realize that there aren't that many weekends left to accumulate the knowledge about God that I'd like to know, that I would have loved to have known at this point in my life. And I think there's a quote that Abraham Heschel makes in his book on the Sabbath. It's on page 98, paragraph three. And the sentence goes, an instant of returning to God may restore what has been lost in years of escaping from him. And when I read that just recently for the first time, it was very peaceful and comforting because the past is gone. I mean, the way he talks about time in the book of the Sabbath is extremely interesting as well, especially to people when you get to a point where there's less of it available to you. So I think what Paul's trying to say is the truth that it is slipping away the, the moment you have today to do whatever it is you're going to do will never, ever come back. And that if you don't do the right thing today, whatever you do tomorrow that's the right thing may not have had as much impact as if you have done it today. Okay, thank you. Iris? We talked about the imitator or being imitators. And yes. I think in a time that is evil, in a time that is dark, it is a temptation for us to become imitators of the environment rather than imitators of God. <laughs> so what we are called to be may not be intuitive. And another aspect, opportune time, we often see as this perfect alignment <laughs> where it's easy to do the right thing. But I think in this context, we may be missing out on opportunities to be countercultural. We may be tempted to lose the chance to reveal God to an ungodly world by the way we imitate Him. Yes, thank you, Iris. And it's very important. Paul is not saying that all the Gentiles in the Roman Empire are like that, because there were people who advocated morality. There were people who were not in debauchery and all these things. But he says, use that opportunity for doing good works, for modeling this love as you have been loved, to show there is different than the self-centered attitude. Terry. I think be careful then how you live as an admonition to us to be aware of the choices that we're making because each choice becomes a building block that forms our character. And then our character also influences us to be open or not be open to what God would like us to understand, especially the knowledge about him. I was thinking about somewhere the verse about the people are covered in darkness and gross darkness. 
my understanding was that the darkness is the misunderstanding or the knowledge of God or the lack of the knowledge of God? Yes. So it's an opportunity to model the knowledge of God, use every opportunity to present that pleasing modeling of unselfish, other-centered love. Michael? For several years now, as an avocation on my part, I have worked with alcoholics and addicts and trying to show them a different way of life. And it is really a difficult process to talk to somebody and say, you know, you're drinking way too much. There's programs that are available for you, like Alcoholics Anonymous, which can not only change your behavior about drinking, but change the direction of your life and start leading a spiritual life. Relying upon God. And common response I have received are things like, well, I'm not that bad yet. And I got plenty of time later to do this. And it's that reminding them of that old saw, but it's so true. This is the first day of the rest of your life. Now is the time to change. But I have found that it is very, very difficult to convince people. Yes. So this is important because if you are a little bit obsessive, if you are a little bit apprehensive, you can easily read these verses that lead even to more obsession and calculating and counting every minute and having no peace, no relaxation. But as Bob Karen put in the chat, whether we realize it or not, we are always witnessing either actively or passively, intentionally or unintentionally, positively or negatively, which leads us to what verses 18 to 20 show that there is a worship that is going on. There's always a worship that is going on. If you look under number nine, when the New Testament church gathers, the focus is on mutual edification. Under the new covenant, the worship happens all the time, 24-7. But when we are together, something more happens than worship. So you are always witnessing, you are always worshiping something. Even when you sleep, you preach a sermon. But when you get together, there is a mutual edification. You bring perspectives that you would not have in your own private walk with God. And that's why it's important to be filled with the Spirit. And that will lead to present the picture where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work together on the community of believers. Just as the Old Testament temple was filled with the presence of God, now you are the temple and you can be filled with the presence of the Spirit when you come together and everybody has something to contribute, whether it's making music, whether it's giving thanks, whether it's speaking, whether it's singing, everybody makes the contribution so that you have the play role, the fulfillment, being filled. You have the fullness of what God wants to do. None of us has that fullness. We all have a particular perspective. And that's why we need one another. That's why the community is so important and each one of us can reach to a different type of people. People that would listen to you would never listen to me. And everybody has something to contribute. And that's why worship is so important. It needs to move beyond stimulation. It needs to be transformation. It needs to lead into incarnation of serving as a loving children of God, modeling to the world the acceptance and the love that we have received to extend it with compassion to others. So, how can we in our world, experience this transforming reality that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians. Mario? Iris mentioned about being an imitator of the good, being an imitator of God. So you can actually expose wrongdoing, unrighteousness, 
by living and doing, standing for truth as an imitating of God's ways and righteousness, which is walking in wisdom. And that is what verse 15, 16, and 17 is talking about. And that is walking in the light. Thank you, Michael. Yes, you touched on something I think is significant, Daniel. During the pandemic, I witnessed things that I found very, very disturbing. For example, going to church, being asked, have you been vaccinated? No, I haven't. Then you can't come in. No, you have to wear a mask. Oh, you can't shake hands. Maybe you can bump elbows or something like that, but don't shake hands. But we are social animals. We need that. We need that contact among one another. And just like we are here today, we are sharing ideas, a common idea, but we all have our own individual perspectives and how God touches us individually. He doesn't touch us communally. But my perceptions of God and my relationship with God is different from everybody else's. It's just the way human beings act. Yes, thank you. Karen? I think the wonder of coming together to worship in mutual edification is that we all see different aspects of God's love in our lives, and then we can bring that to share with each other to expand a picture of how God loves us. And also, as we come together, we encourage one another. We do the one another's that Paul talks about that build each other up. And so we experience love between us and also help us to experience the love of God around us. And then we can grow in that love and share it with others, and others can see what love looks like in the space between us. And I think that's really inspiring. Yes. So worship, worship, you know, it's treasuring God. Mm. I ponder his worth and then I do something about it. I go and give him what he is worth. And that's why worship is transformation through adoration, to quote Graham Kendrick. You enter the presence of God, you are welcome in his presence, and by making that space, you allow God to act in your life. So the mighty acts of God can be repeated. So that's why if we do not move beyond entertainment and stimulation, it's going to corrupt itself and it's going to end up where the behavior of the Roman Empire ended up. But true worship brings transformation. As you can see in the Bible, David sings, an evil spirit is driven away from Saul. His mental state is changed. Holy Spirit comes and the disciples are changed. Paul meets Jesus on the Damascus road. He's changed. Paul and Silas are singing in a jail after being beaten and thrown in the jail. And the prison keeper, the warden, is changed. John sees the worship in heaven. He is changed. So that's why the worship is the place that prepares us to hear God's voice in our hearts, in our family, in our church, in the world, and model what beloved children of God are like. Henry? And to put it in a practical way, at least on my personal experience, worship for me will be becoming more inclusive, accepting and loving those that I thought couldn't be in the presence of God, those that I probably rejected before because they were not living up to the standards that I had or that the church has. And remembering that worship is not a place, but it's an attitude that I can easily do, well, not easily, that's probably the poorest word to use, but I can achieve in the words of Jesus in Matthew 26, 40. Whatever you did for one of these least 
of these brothers of mine. You did it for me. You were worshiping me. That's in the practical way how I can apply it in my life. Because in the past, sometimes I have thought that there was people that will never make it to heaven. And I was never thinking that it was me, the one for having that attitude. Yeah, thank you. So it's the worship where you sense the need for cleansing, for repentance, for renewal. And if you don't, you have not worshipped. If you only enjoy the music or the preaching or the people around you, but you don't connect with God's kingdom and the values and the purposes, then our worship has failed us, regardless of the excellence of the musicians, the eloquence of the preacher, or the richness of fellowship within the community. Because it's this transformational aspect, so that you see yourself as dearly beloved children, and you can love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Okay, Larry, tell us what the unthinking worship does. You said it so well in the chat. Unthinking worship, as I understand it, is an attempt to make things take the place of time. A spirit is time. One thing I've learned and am learning from reading Abraham Heschel is this experience time is what God is about. You experience God in time, not in place. When I share an experience, time with the family, I learn so much more by listening to the story and the shared experience that everybody else brings. I learn things that would take me weeks to learn an experience, and I come away so much richer. And Paul talks about community. That to me is that the richness of the experience is so much more collectively greater than the time I invested that there's an explosion of experience by communicating and sharing together this richness that God as spirit brings that just can't be done individually. Thank you. Thank you. And to quote what you put, by beholding, then we become the change. And that's the important part that God wants us to live as his beloved children. And then in worship, we respond to all that God is takes more than one person to get a perspective on that. A female perspective is different than the male perspective. An introvert's perspective is different than the extrovert's perspective. And once we get a fuller picture of who God is, we can respond with all that we are. And that's why the worship is more than just the emotional aspect or the cognitive aspect. It has also the financial aspect. It has the health aspect and there is the interdependence of the whole person and the whole community. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be careful how we live in the world and time and place where you put us. Yet you know how often we can be so anxious that it damages us and the people around us. Or we can be so careless that we go through unnecessary disappointments that either you or the religion or the system did not deliver what we expected. It's all because we lose sight of who you are, your love, and how much you care about each one of us. And so we pray that in coming days and weeks, we can get a new perspective on the richness and the dimensions of your love, not only in our own personal lives, but through the community where you put us, each one of us in the sphere of influence, and that we can experience new way of filling with your Holy Spirit not only in our personal worship, in our daily lives, but also in times of 
mutual edification when we meet as brothers and sisters, as your church, your community, so that people who don't know you yet can be drawn to you and experience a transformation in their lives that they would not otherwise if they just listened to the prevailing culture and the stories that bring disappointment and deceive people. Thank you that you want to use each one of us and bless us more than we can imagine through Jesus Christ. Amen.